0: Well if you want to turn your Bibles to First Corinthians chapter seven, verse ten. First Corinthians seven verse ten. Okay, as our custom in Genesis tells us, let's stand to read the Word of God. But to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else can reconcile to her husband. And that the husband should not divorce his wife. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband, and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise, her children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage. In such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Let's pray. Lord, we come today to our fourth and final sermon, and our series on divorce and remarriage. And I know, God, it's been uh, a huge learning curve for me in the last four weeks. I'm going to pray, God, that your spirit would guide me into truth as we deal with our final passage today. There's much more to be said than what we're just about to say today, but... At some point, Lord, we have to close it and move on. But we just pray, Lord, that wherever we're at in our lives, in terms of thinking, that your word will, will permeate our minds and our hearts and open us up to truth, God. And if we need correcting in our thinking, then we receive that correcting. If we need encouragement, we receive encouragement. Wherever we're at, Lord, just pray for that. And I pray that you would give me uh, the truth to say as well. I'm not always perfect and I'm fallible as well. And so I just pray that anything from me is removed and anything from you is put in the sermon. So I look forward to our time now. In Christ's name, amen. Well, it's great to see everyone here today. I know many of you are new. Uh, To our church. So, for those of you who are new, it's great that you could join us today for not only the baby dedications but for our fourth and final sermon in the series on divorce and remarriage. Now, I should say a few preliminary words that weren't originally in my notes. Um, Coming in at this stage in the game is like joining a hockey game in overtime. You've missed the first three periods, and so there's a lot of questions you have about the game and how it got to that score. Well today we've been working sequentially through marriage and singleness and sex and divorce and all these things and so uh, you're hitting the tail end of what's a four-part series. So a lot of questions you may have may not be answered today simply because we've covered a lot of those in the first three sermons. They're all on the website and so if you want to hit them all in order uh, that's probably the best way of going about it. But I do want to say a few words of reminder from last week from last week's message. And I want to spend most of my time here just talking again about the background and the culture of Corinth. You see, it helps us understand some of the, the, the arena of what's going on in Paul's day. Corinth, if you remember, was a port city. Uh, today, if you look on a map, it's about 80 kilometers from Athens. An hour, car in the, an hour ride in the car. And uh, it was known as a place of commerce and trade because it was a port city. Now being a place of commerce and trade then it had a lot of visitors and a lot of merchants and a lot of sailors. Well you can imagine what that kind of lifestyle bred on the port when sailors and visitors and tourists showed up on a regular basis in your city. It was known as a high party town. It was uh, like the stampede on steroids but all year round. So with this party town then there was a lot of sexual immorality and a lot of moral depravity and bankruptcy and throughout the Roman Empire the whole Roman Empire knew that Corinth was such an immoral place that if you were said uh, to be an immoral person out of a high extreme standard, they would say that you are a Corinthian. Or if you were sexually immoral to a high degree, they'd say you're Corinthianizing. That's how, how well known they were for their lifestyle. Now contributing to that, uh, that, that culture was the presence of the Temple of Aphrodite. This is the goddess of love. If you wanted to worship her, you would join yourself to one of the local prostitutes that was employed there at the temple. And according to one commentary, they expected even up to a thousand uh, temple prostitutes at one location at one time. And they were always booked. Now also, we talked about the Greek philosophy that shaped their view of sex and marriage. This is something called dualism. It's important to understand the Corinthian culture. This is the belief that the world and the human body was made up of two parts. You have the physical side of your life and the spiritual side of your life. The physical was seen as evil and bad. And the reason was, is they recognized it was temporal. It was merely in a state of decay. And so the body was nothing but a hindrance and nuisance that got in the way of your soul. On the other side was your spirit, which they saw of great importance. This was the part that was going to touch heaven. It was immortal. And so therefore, because it was going to be with the gods one day, this is the part that you should only care about in your life. So basically, as a, as a Corinthian, then, you lived with thinking the body is not important to you, and everything is about protecting one's spiritual life and the soul. So two schools of thought came out of this, then. Two schools. On one side, there was the Epicureans. They believed that since the body wasn't important, you're free to do whatever with it whatever you want. So they had a model like sex is an appetite. Right? Just like you want... If you're hungry, you go and eat. Well, if you want sex, you just go have sex. It doesn't matter. If the body is irrelevant. And we looked at an example of this last week in First Corinthians 6, verse 12. The Stoics, on the other hand, believed that the body was evil and corrupt as well, but they had a different attitude on it. Since it's evil and corrupt, you're not to give in to its desires and not to feed it what it wants. So you're to deny the flesh and, and protect your spiritual state in that way. So their model was sex is defiling at something dirty, something to be ashamed of, it negatively impacts your spirituality. And again, we looked at an example of that in 1 Corinthians 7, starting in verse 3. Now, what's interesting about that we discussed was that the same two prevailing attitudes exist in our culture today. And if I were to ask you to weigh in, what side of the coin do you actually feel like you weigh, like, that you side with more? Do you feel that, you know, you're going to be on one side or the other, right? I feel that something sex is something to be ashamed of, it's a bit dirty. To be really a Christian, to be holy, you should probably really abstain and be kind of more prudish. On the other side, you might think, well, sex is just awesome, and I have, it's my body can do whatever I want, and so therefore I'm free to do whatever I want as a Christian as well. Right? Or even if you're not a Christian, you still have that attitude. So the same two prevailing attitudes exist in our culture today. And so when people say the Bible is old-fashioned, you can't trust it, it's an old book, it's basically outdated, it was a program. We can see now that the Bible is very relevant to today's culture. And actually God knows exactly what He's doing and what He's saying in the Scriptures. So let's dive in then. So remember that in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul's responding to a series of questions that he received in the letter from the Corinthian church. And in 7 verse 1, he he actually says this, Now concerning the things about which you wrote, okay? So the Corinthians had written Paul a letter. He wasn't in Corinth at the time when he received this letter. And they have a bunch of questions about singleness, sex, marriage, remarriage, divorce, and so on. And so last week we looked at some of the questions in verses 1 to 9, addressing those who asked that were single. Uh, These are people who had never been married before or who had been widowed and so they were asking questions What do we do in light of being a Christian in terms of our sexuality and how do we approach marriage and so forth? So we answered those questions and Paul did and today we're going to look at now the questions that came from those who were married What were their options now as Christians who are married? Were they to stay together in all all circumstances? Or would there be a case in which divorce was permitted? And if they got divorced, what were their options then? Could they remarry? Could they stay single? What was the state of them? So we pick up Paul's answer beginning in verse 10. He says this, But to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. We better address first what Paul meant by this statement, I give instructions, no, sorry, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord. Now it's important to recognize this because verse 12 seems to contradict this. In verse 12 he says, but to the rest I say, not the Lord. So in verse 10 he says this, I'm giving you instructions, these are from God, these are from the Lord Jesus, but my second set of instructions in verse 12 are not from Jesus, they're from me. So what, how do we deal with this? Was Paul basically saying, uh, you know, God's commandments from Jesus are actually uh, more trustworthy than mine because I'm just merely a man? Well, of course not. The reason why he could say this was that as an apostle, God had revealed to him and the apostles all knew about Jesus' earthly teachings and divorce. They knew him. He taught them in places like Matthew and Matthew 19 and uh Mark 10 and Luke 16. So they knew them. So he was just, when they asked their question about what they can do with regards to divorce and remarriage, basically, Paul says, remember, Jesus spoke on this. You can, I'm giving you an answer that Jesus gave. So this is nothing new to you. This is Jesus' own words, and as an apostle, I know it. However, in verse 12, when he says, but to the rest I say, not the Lord, what he was saying there is this, directly in your, to your, the answer to your question was never given to me by Jesus. As we were learning from him, we never actually received any specific teaching on this exact question. But don't worry, I can still give you my opinion. But it was more than just opinion. It was more just an opinion. See, he was an apostle. It wasn't like the Corinthians were to ignore his counsel, nor were we to ignore his counsel. And if you understand what an apostle was, you understand that he had the authority and the right to speak on behalf of Jesus. He would never contradict Jesus, and Jesus actually appointed him as an ambassador. To basically speak on his behalf. And here's a great verse in 1 Thessalonians 2. This is uh, Paul speaking to the Thessalonian church. He says, for this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which, which is the truth concerning Jesus Christ, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of man, but for what it really is the word of God. In other words, Thessalonians, you've heard our messages, but don't just think it's a man passing this down to you. God actually taught us these things, and we we are here now teaching you them as well. And so you can trust my words. And this is why in verse 25, not part of our sermon today, but look at verse 25 in Corinthians 7, it says this. Now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion as one, by the mercy of the Lord, is trustworthy. I'm trustworthy. Why? Because Jesus actually appointed me as an apostle to speak on his behalf. So basically, when Paul gave his instruction throughout this whole text, Jesus was giving him the thumbs up saying, I'm right on board. I'm right in line with you, Paul. So with all this being said then, what was Paul's instruction? Well, let's read verse 10-11. And we'll skip the part in brackets for now. But to the Mary to give instructions, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband, or else be sorry, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. Let me try that again. The wife should not leave her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. Paul's instruction was pretty clear. As Christians, as a Christian couple, they were not to pursue divorce. They weren't. Their marriages were designed to be permanent, which of, cons- of course was consistent with Jesus' teachings throughout the entire New Testament. But Paul also was a realist. He knew that even though marriage was to be permanent and divorce was not to be on the table, he also knew that marriages are often messy and they're complicated, and extenuating circumstances often arise that lead someone to pursue separation and divorce. So what were they to do then? What would you do then if you did pursue divorce, even though you weren't supposed to? Well, verse eleven is clear: if you do leave you must remain unmarried. In other words, stay in a state of singleness or be reconciled to the husband. So your only choice is if you got divorced as a, as a, in this Christian context as a Christian couple, if you decided to separate and divorce, here's the thing you have to live a life of basically singleness or you have to get reconciled to your husband. Now the word singleness there needs to be defined because in our culture single means free to move on. So in our culture, if you get get divorced, you just take off and go off to another spouse. That's not what Paul is talking about here. The definition of unmarried in this text is single but yet still married. Did you catch that? Because he says you must remain unmarried, you must remain in that state or be reconciled. So Paul wasn't giving a green light to move on. He was saying if you choose to do this, you either stay basically um, in this single state with the covenant still in place or you reconcile to your spouse. Now notice what was not on the table. Again, remarriage. So in our culture, if you get divorced and you're unmarried, you are free and get a green light to move on. Not according to Paul. Now why would this be? Because remarriage in this instance, if you were to get, if you had a marriage union, and you went off and got remarried when you divorced, you'd be guilty of adultery. You'd be guilty of adultery. Matthew 19.9, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife Except for sexual morality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. And in verse Mark 10:11, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. This is extremely, again, important teaching by Paul, considering what our culture teaches about divorce. Again, because again, we get this green light that you're free. But Paul says you're not free. The laws of the land might might determine you as being free to remarry, but that's not the case in God's eyes. You're still bound to the marriage. And so if you decide to do this, you either stay single and hope for reconciliation. Now this is really important in our church. Really important in this church. See, this allows us to properly counsel people within the church who are seeking to separate or get divorced. See, this is my experience and I don't know what yours is, but this is my experience and I've got 10 years of it. So you can do with what you want with 10 years of experience. You might think that's nothing, you might think that's a lot, I don't know. But I've been heavily involved in marriages in my 10 years. so That's one of the God's ministries have given me. And in my experience, in almost all circumstances in which a person wants to be separated or to get divorced, it's their actual method of actually trying to be free from the spouse and wanting to move on. So in their mind, they're already gone. When they go to separate and divorce, they're not actually looking to separate and divorce with the potential of reconciliation or staying single. It's, a, it's, a, it's their way of actually trying to get out and hopefully the thing will terminate so they can move on. And so their conduct after that will, will be dictated according to that. There won't be loving talk and, uh, and the gentleness and peaceful, peacefulness between them as they try to work through their issues. It'll be more like fighting, fighting, fighting and victory. Now this is important because I remember I was standing in my gym uh, when I used to own it about well, five years ago, and as a pastor coming to the gym at the time, many of you know him, uh, George Bud from the E Free Church, and George and I are standing by ourselves in the foyer of the of my gym, and we're talking one on one, and I said to him, yeah, like it's really tricky working through Christian couples when they try to get separated, and, and so on and so forth, and George said this I never forgot it. He says, yeah, my experience is when people get separated. I always want to know which way is your nose pointing in the separation. Which way is your nose pointing? Right? And what, is, which, what happens? Most of the, their faces are turned the opposite way. So one, This is Pinocchio over here. But one person's nose is pointing this way, one person's nose is pointing that way. So when they get divorced or separated, they're not actually looking to reconcile. Them. They're already out the door. And he says, in my, he said, my, my, what I always think in my mind is I want to make them understand that their noses better be pointing to each other when they separate. So your feet might have left your house, but they haven't left your marriage. And this is what Paul's saying. He's saying if you go to get divorced and you separate, because certain extenuating circumstances happen like that, like physical abuse and things like that where you have to protect the spouse. You'd separate them, right, for the safety of the family and so on. So there's some crazy circumstances that happen like that in life and we're not oblivious to the things that these things happen. We don't have our head in the sand when it comes to these issues. But Paul saying, in that divorce, make sure your nose is pointed towards your spouse for the purpose of reconciliation. So Paul made it clear then, when it came to two professing believers, they were not to divorce. But then, what about then when a the believer was married to an unbeliever? Could they get out then? What could they do then? Let's read verse 12 and 13. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. Notice the words send her husband away and divorce here are used interchangeably as the same thing. It's not two separate instructions to two spouses, it's the same it's a euphemism for the same language. But what's Paul's answer here? Well, if an unbelieving spouse wants to stay with you in the marriage as a Christian, you don't pursue divorce. You work it out. Now, why would this be important? Verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband, for otherwise her children are unclean, but now they are holy. Now they are holy. This might sound a little confusing at first. Like, what is Paul really trying to say by, you know, they're sanctified and they're holy and all these types of things. Well, let me first tell you what he's not saying. He's not saying here that the unbelieving spouse is somehow considered to be a Christian because of the presence of the believing spouse in the marriage. He's not saying that. First, from the context, we can see, A, that the person in this context is defined as an unbeliever. So they're defined as an unbeliever, not as a believer. So the sanctification and made holy can't have anything to do with salvation and a relationship with Jesus Christ. Secondly, no one in the Bible supports this as a means of salvation. We never get to have a personal relationship with Christ through osmosis. If that was the case, um, you know, anyone raised in a Christian home would naturally by extension be a Christian and we just know that's not possible. The Bible never teaches that. So the answer comes when we understand the specific language that Paul is using to describe the situation here. See, Paul uses the words sanctified, unclean, and holy. Now you need to think through these words categorically. For those of you who are familiar with the Bible, where do you see the words like sanctified, unclean, and holy? Well, in Old Testament language describing like the law and even the temple. In 1 Corinthians 6.19, a Christian is referred to as the temple of the Lord. The the Holy Spirit, when He indwells you, you, He lives in you. That's the temple of the Lord. That's what a Christian is referred to in 6.19 of Corinthians. So in the temple in Jerusalem, in the physical temple, unclean things were never allowed to enter it. if a bowl was to be used by a priest or utensil used in some kind of worship or sacrifice, it had to first be sanctified, which means to be set apart for service or be made holy. So if I was to sanctify this um, sanctify this uh, remote control that does my PowerPoint, I'd have to put batteries in it and I'd have to use it to... Uh, Lick the computer not just put it behind my ear to scratch my head. So this might work to scratch my head, but that's not being sanctified for particular use. It's only sanctified when I've got it working with this computer, okay? So what he's saying is like any your tempts sort or of anything had to sanctify, set apart that tool or implement for use in the temple. It had to be made holy. In the, in, the old, uh, in the Bible times of like Paul, if an unbeliever or Gentile walked into the inner courts of the temple and tried to enter, they would actually die. You couldn't just walk in with, into the temple. You had to be ceremonially like, uh, dealt with before you could even walk in. So here in Corinth, you had these cases now where these believers who are the temple of God are married to these unbelievers, these Gentile pagans. And somehow, they probably thought in their minds that they were being defiled and being made unclean because of this relationship. And that's why I gave you that introduction about the dualistic mindset. Because again, if your whole purpose as a, as a Greek and Corinthians is to protect your spiritual state, being married to this, Christ, this non-Christian now would surely defile you and you didn't want to do, have anything to do with that. And so they thought, oh, I can just get rid of my wife or my husband because I'm now married to a non-Christian. And probably how these unions happened was they were both non-Christians when they married, likely, and Paul came into their city, gave the gospel, one person responded and one didn't. And now they're wondering what to do with this unequally yoked uh, relationship. So Paul here flips their entire mindset on its head. He says to them this, Not only is the presence of the unbeliever not defiling you, your presence in the marriage is actually having a cleansing effect on your spouse and their children and your entire family. You catch that? For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband for otherwise her children are unclean but now they are holy. So the grace of God that's been poured out into the life of the Christian is now being poured out into the life of the family. It's spilling over. And all the blessings that come along from God in terms of being in relationship with Him are now coming across and spilling over into the entire family. And this must have been an unbelievable teaching for the Corinthians to receive and hear. But this has interesting application for us. Because often in marriages where non-Christians are married to Christians, the Christian is often met with a lot of hostility in the relationship. You're just a Jesus freak. You're just a dumb Bible thumper. You're wrapped up too much in this religious stuff. When are you just going to go back to the person I originally married and just stop going down this crazy path? I miss you. I miss my old wife. I miss my old husband. Why don't you just like let this all go and just go back to who you used to be? God's not even real anyway. It's just a total figment of your imagination. What the spouse doesn't realize in those comments is by the extension of who they are married to, they are living under God's divine protection and blessings and beneficiary care. The unbelieving spouse is living, because of the presence of the unbelieving spouse, under a care from God that normally would not be in that home. So if the person who's an unbeliever decides to divorce that person, they're completely on their own without God's protection. And they're out from the shadow of God's wing because of the presence of that believing spouse. So Paul addressed what to do then if an unbeliever consented to stay. But what if they didn't? What if they even knew about the divine care and said, I don't care. God's not real anyway. So there's like, it's like Santa Claus. Like there's no, or like the tooth fairy. Like I mean, there's no divine protective care there anyway. So like once you get older and grow up and mature, you'll figure this out. What do you do then if they leave? what Paul tells us in verse 15. And if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister are not under bondage in such cases. But God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? So what are the Christians to do when their unbelieving spouse wants to ditch them and divorce them? You let them go. You let them go. But notice how. To let them go peacefully. So you're not to fight tooth and nail. Not to make it difficult in the home. You're to let them go peacefully. And why? Verse 16. For how do you know a wife whether you will save your husband? And how do you know a husband will save your wife? Because how you behave towards your spouse through divorce can still have an evangelistic effect on your spouse. So, So the goal is through the goal, even through the divorce proceedings, which you don't want. This is not your design. This is theirs. This is what they want. So you're kind of handcuffed because you don't want it, but they do. So the goal through that divorce proceedings is that you still can save your spouse, because if they turn to Jesus Christ, their mind will change towards a relationship, and they'll want to get back together with you. Because now you, they're, they're, their problem with you in the first place is your is your new Christianity and this hocus-pocus faith you have. But if they if they now think the same way as you do, they'll see that. It'll change your mindset towards the whole relationship. And you can see the logic in this, right? With Paul saying, don't be fighting, don't be under bondage in this case, but be under peace. I mean, imagine you're, you're, you're in your room and your spouse comes in and says, by the way, I'm separating from you, I'm, I'm taking off. Uh, I don't know if I'm divorcing you quite yet, but I probably will, but I'm done with this marriage for now and... And he and so he starts packing his clothes in his bed and as he's packing his bed he goes in to get, get some stuff from the bathroom and you come in there and take his clothes and throw them all over the you know, throw them out of the suitcase onto the floor, and you're like, you know, you're staying with me, I'm making you stay with me or he's you know, got the bags packed later because he's found a secret place to do it. And then you find his keys. And so you hide his keys in the, in the garbage can or whatever. In the, or some funny place in the backyard. And he can't find his keys anywhere. And you pretend to play it dumb because you're trying to force him to stay. I mean, you can see the idiocy of trying to fight someone to, to be in a relationship. It just wouldn't work. It just wouldn't work. And so Paul says this. If you let him go peacefully... It's better to do that because there's still a chance in that to win your husband. If you let or wife, if you do it in a fighting way, you're just decreasing the chances. So use this opportunity as an evangelistic effect to try to still win your spouse by the way you behave and your conduct when you separate. Now I do want to end the sermon with a discussion around an important issue that arises from these last two verses. It has to do with what terminates a marriage. There are are many uh, strong pastors uh, and well-respected pastors and teachers who will say that abandonment of a spouse, abandonment of a spouse is a termination of a marriage. Okay, so, um, you know, if your spouse leaves you and divorces you, you are now free to be remarried. And a lot of respected teachers say that, and I, I understand why they say that. But I'm going to suggest that actually Paul's not suggesting that you're free to remarry just because you've been left in your, in, your, in your relationship. Okay? And the reason is this. It's a critical observation here, I think, in verse 16. He still calls the separated divorced partner their husband and their wife. Did you notice that? How do you know, oh wife, whether you will save your husband? He doesn't call him an ex. He doesn't say, you're now single, he actually still refers to them as in that single state. Or sorry, in that married state. There's a covenant still in place. So at this point, at this point, even if the unbelieving spouse divorces the believer, there's still an opportunity for reconciliation. There's still an opportunity. As long as that, that unbelieving spouse doesn't go off and get remarried and stuff, and stays single, there's still an opportunity for an ability to reconcile. So there's no point in you moving on because there's a potential for that to be still reconciled. So once they get remarried, now we, have, now we have a different conversation to have. But at this point in, the, in Corinthians uh, 7, uh, you can still save your husband and wife. And then Paul still sees as married. And this makes sense to the entire context. Verses ten through sixteen, every time we see open for reconciliation, open for reconciliation. The whole passage is about reconciliation in divorce. Reconciliation, divorce, that's God's number one design. And again, our culture says, When I'm divorced, I'm free. Yeeha. And God says, In the law you are, in the laws of the land, but in God's eyes you're not. There's still a covenant and He wants you to be remarried. He wants you to reconcile to your spouse. I want to end with a story. That's kind of fitting. I didn't know, like uh, Dan and Jody's parents, would be here today, but it's kind of fitting that I'm going to end with a story from uh, Dan and Jody. And Dan, if you those of you who don't know, mentored me in the ministry. And so Genesis House is a church plant from Pine Ridge House, and we only exist because of uh, Dan's investment in my life and um, their church. And so we're very grateful to them. But when Dan and Jody, uh, or sorry, when Dan spoke in this passage, uh, he did a sermon about seven years ago in this passage so six years ago and uh, he, he gave this story and I'll end with this story as an application of verses 15 and 16 they were Dan and Jody were in Virginia in Kentucky and attending a church and they were asked to go there to participate in this sort of like a revival type meeting and they were asked to go with kind of as teachers and sub, as a support ministry team so we hear this woman get up and give her testimony that day. And she gets up and she begins to say this. That she was used to be married to a man who was an alcoholic. And the marriage was progressively getting worse. And one day she finally had enough and, and said, you know what, I'm done with you. And she packed up her little boy and left the marriage and eventually got divorced. So, you know, time goes on. Like, you know, the months and the years. and Or I think it was years, I don't know. I should actually just... I'll recant that. I don't actually know the timeline. But time went on anyway. And she found out through the grapevine that her husband had stopped drinking. He'd stopped. He'd been cured of his alcoholism. And he'd eventually got remarried because, I mean, she ditched him anyway. And this is what she said about the situation in hindsight. And I quote this. She says, I wish at the time that some Christian would have taken me aside and told me that God was bigger than my struggles in my marriage. That God could help me walk through this. But she said, not one Christian did. Not one. And she said, I took the chance of reconciling my marriage away when I divorced them, And I took away from my son the chance to have a dad who ended up becoming a changed man. Now, I don't know how that impacts you, but it impacts me. Because when we're hurting, and I get it. I had a tough marriage in the first couple of years with Janice. And many of you know my story. But when we're hurting, we all, all we usually think about is our own rights. Our own needs. Our own desires. Our own emotions. Our own happiness. What's in it for me? What's best for me? But what's this woman saying to us? She says, "I wish someone told me that God had another way that I could have handled this. I could have stayed, according to verse 11, single, or else be reconciled. I didn't have to go uh, off and just w- w- go so like uh, hasty into this whole thing. And what she was, and that's the saying was I wish I could be back with that guy, but she couldn't anyway. He was remarried by this point." So again, this is Paul's, Paul's instruction then has some practical implications and applications for the way we counsel in their church. And if we ever face these situations at Genesis House, this is the exact counsel we will give. But I think this would change a lot for who pursues divorce and who pursues separation. Because I think in our culture, because we're so used to thinking that if I divorce, I'm free... If we, do, if we say in the church, you're, you, if you divorce, you're not free, you're still sing, you're single, but you still have to, your only option here is to stay that way or to reconcile, it might change how hastily people seek to separate. It might change it, because again, if in our mindset, I'm doing this secretly because I actually want out, and I'm just going to play this game until I actually get finally rid of them, that might change the fact of the way we would, how fast we consider separating or the issues that we consider separating over. So, again, this is very applicable to us as a church. Okay, four lessons, and then we'll go to time of discussion. And then you join us downstairs for some wonderful food. I know there's been a lot prepared for the special service today. Lesson one Christian couples are not to divorce, but if they do, they must stay single or else be reconciled to their spouse. I feel like a broken record, but broken records are still good records. <laughs> Christian couples are not to divorce, but if they do, they must stay single or else be reconciled to their spouse. Key verse on this is unmarried in verse 11. Paul's definition of unmarried is still tied to the covenant, single, but still bound to the marriage. Our culture of unmarried, single, free to go off and do whatever you want. Same in 16. How do you know a wife whether you save your husband? How do you know a husband whether you'll save your wife? Or your, your wife. Yeah. So again, yeah, they've divorced you. And you didn't want it, they wanted it, because you're a Christian and they hate, your, they hate your faith. But still be open to reconciliation. I would call this legal separation in our... like Paul's use of the word unmarried, I would just call it legal separation in our culture. Reconciliation still is the desired outcome. Lesson 2. Christians married to unbelievers who want to stay in the marriage are not committed to divorce or spouse. So you're not defiled if you're with a non-Christian. You're not file. you're not with the Corinthian mindset that, oh, my spiritual state's at risk with them being in my marriage. We are actually said, no, stick, stick with it. And because you are actually bringing a sanctifying grace into the family that normally wouldn't be there. Third lesson. In cases where believers and non-believers are united in marriage, the unbelieving family members will be the benefactors of God's grace due to the presence of the believing spouse. So I just, there you go. I have another broken record there, <laughs> repeating myself. But again, this is really important. But again, if non-Christians actually knew, knew what God was doing in that family because of that, I think they would think twice about what's actually how fast they want to get rid of their spouse. I mean, think about it. For those of you who know this from all the work we've done in our church, think of God's financial wisdom He gives to the Scriptures. Think of God's parenting wisdom to the scriptures. Think of God's desire for you to be forgiving. And to be and to be grace, gracious towards people and gentle and slow to speak and, and, and to one another and things like that. How can a family not benefit? The children benefit from a from a financially wise, gentle person who who's um, trying to raise their kids to be um, trying to raise their kids to follow the Lord in all their ways. I mean, these are these are tremendous benefits to a family if they were to do these things. What rips apart families is unforgiveness. Unforgiveness rips apart families. And God says, if you don't forgive others, neither will your Heavenly Father forgive you. Then a Christian home, forgiveness is, is, is an absolute must. The very thing that families want is reconciliation, but they won't forgive to get it. And God says, if you have a Christian spouse, they will always push for forgiveness and reconciliation in the family. So the very thing we crave, God offers. Lesson four. Final lesson: When Christians are separated from, or, from, or sorry, when Christians are separated from or divorced by their unbelieving spouses, they are let them to go in a peaceful situation. Oh, I'm not reading this very well. When Christians are separated from or divorced by their unbelieving spouses, they are to let them go in peace and view the situation as an evangelistic opportunity. Don't fight your spouse the whole way out the door. Pray and like crazy for them that God will change their heart and mind towards you and use every situation to win them for Christ. So the key is your conduct. And that's hard to do because when you're hurt and you're bitter and feel mistreated, you want to lose your mind and snap of your territory. And Jesus says, I suffered unjustly for you, for my love for you. You suffer unjustly because of a connection to me towards your spouse. And let me handle your value. Let me handle your character. Let me handle who you are as a person. But you just go off and win your partner to the Lord.